Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granoski gluskin Charitable Foundation. Hey, Stuart, how's it going? Good, how's it going? What are the plans for uh, New Year's in the Thompson household? Do you have some strange Scottish tradition involving like a lump of coal and walking around the house? No, my mom has a lot of uh, New Year's superstitions that, you know, for example, you have to clean the house, which as we speak, I'm realizing was probably just some way to get us to clean the house when we were kids. Um, I come from Stonehaven, which is in the north of Scotland, where they have uh, fireballs. So people literally walk down the street with flaming balls of fire swinging around their head, and then they dump it in the ocean at the end. So that is kind of like the tradition to end all traditions. And uh, in competition with that, I just, you know, we watch Braveheart and go to bed. Flaming balls of fire. I, it's incredible. Come on, I like this. Why haven't we imported this? Uh, we imported enough Scotsmen. No flaming balls. I'm disappointed. Well, can you imagine the city of Ottawa if you went to them and said, hey, I'd like to <laughs> chuck some flaming balls of fire <laughs> into the canal. I don't think it would go over. Oh, it could be a uh, it could be an important cultural, you know, moment of uh, <laughs> you know, identity expression. No doubt the Canadian Heritage Grant uh, could be facilitated for those purposes, Stuart. I, I think you should look on this as an opportunity <laughs> for you to write that grant. But yeah, look, I'll in all seriousness too. or not, let's uh, spend this final episode of the year. We're recording this on uh, the day before New Year's, the thirtieth of December. Um, in some rank uh, political speculation. Um, let's have some fun. Our wingman, Sean Spear, is not here, but he's getting a deserved break uh, with a new baby, which is terrific um, in New York City. So we send him our very best wishes. And uh, he can throw, I don't know what, used diapers at uh, his his uh, speaker when he hears us um, um, pontificating uh, on the year that could be. So. Stuart, I think the first thing I guess I wanted to ask you about was where we kind of enter 2023 in terms of um, the national political scene. Um, I get a sense that we have two protagonists here in terms of Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau, who really don't like each other, uh, seem well-matched, and must be hankering for a fight. Do you think an election is an odds-on likely event in 2023, or is that, again, just rank political speculation? Yeah, I, if, if I were betting on it, I would say no. Um, it is quite interesting, though, because we go into this year, and I never would have, if you told me this six months ago, I never would have believed it, but the liberals seem to be in a really good spot. And they have sort of the normal headwinds. They have economic headwinds. Um, they have inflation that just seems, you know, so hard to battle right now. Um, but it's not reflected in the polling. It's not reflected really in the numbers. And we had a by-election in December where the Liberals ran away with it. And, you know, however much by-elections matter, um, they still won. It's better than losing. And so I think 
if you are looking at this from the point of view of the liberals, like if they were going to play a game of chicken with the NDP, um, with this governance deal they have, I think they would have a very strong hand because I think of all the parties, they would feel the most comfortable going to the polls. I don't think that they would want to, but in a minority government, you know, sometimes you do it not so much on purpose, but it just sort of follows. It's almost like the uh, sleepwalking uh, into an election. Um, so I think, you know, the liberals, they, they probably feel like they have a strong hand to sort of push back a little bit um, to sort of make the NDP look foolish if they want to. And I don't think the conservatives are ready yet. I think that probably they want to get some, um, you know, steam behind their new leader and try to get his numbers rising because they're not good right now. He's got bad, favorable, and unfavorable numbers. And that's something I know they're going to want to fix before they even think about an election. Let's talk a little bit about the prime minister. Uh, he's going into his seventh year now uh, in government. Um, 2023, one might think could be you know, an inflection point for the Liberal Party. As you say, right now, the poll numbers certainly uh, put all the wind at the back of the of the Liberal Party uh, versus the Conservatives. But to what extent do you think this prime minister really remains committed uh, to being the leader of his party, to taking his party into yet another election? We know the, the history of that, at least if you think that, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it could rhyme. And if it does rhyme, usually these elections uh, that happen towards the end because it does signify the end of the political career of a prime minister after multiple appearances before the electorate unable to you know reestablish majority government uh, those are high risk high risk events that usually have bad conclusions yeah i um there is kind of a rhyme here with i think the end of the harper years which is that you had a prime minister who could kind of see the writing on the wall like the numbers were getting a little bit rough, but you can always convince yourself that you can turn that around in an election campaign. And the funny thing is that Stephen Harper was coming up against Pierre Trudeau's son. And there wasn't someone, um, you know, waiting in the wings that was the obvious choice to take over, not like Paul Martin waiting for Cretchen to go down. Um, and I think Harper felt like, you know, he was the only person who had a shot against Justin Trudeau um, to sort of beat him back. And now you have Justin Trudeau coming up against probably the Liberal Party's most hated conservative politician. I think if they were to do a poll, Pierre Polyev is at least in the top five and probably has been in the top five for uh, 15 years. Um, so I know they want to beat him. And I know Justin Trudeau is probably thinking something along those lines that, you know, Christia Freeland is probably the obvious successor, but I don't think you know, you could get a lot of mixed opinions on whether or not she'd actually be a good leader, a good prime minister, whether she has that sort of political sense. And then there's a few kind of people around the edges. There's the obvious Mark Carney wildcard. It's always out there. Um, but I think if you're Justin Trudeau, you look at the landscape and you say, I think I'm the guy who has to go against Pierre Polyev. And I think that's probably true. So I think you definitely in 2022 noticed um, the trajectory of the prime minister's energy levels kind of kicking into high gear with the ascension of Pierre Polyev. And everything you hear from the liberal side is that he's just ready to rock. And I think that that's the same on the conservative side. They're really excited for the next election, although I don't think they, they want it to happen too soon. Um, but I think that is sort of the idea right now. And then you have the NDP that would probably prefer that you know, the next election was years away. 
and they may well get their wish. Uh, we'll have yeah. to see. But uh, okay, let's shift from from politics uh, to the economy. Um, Canada coming through uh, a year here of um, of an inflation scare, uh, rapid series of uh, rate hikes, the kind of fastest in uh, in lived memory. Um, what do you? Th- how do you think that plays out in terms of? kind of national policy and national policy making. We've seen an impetus, certainly at the provincial level, to, you know, pick up um, the uh, the cudgel of supposed inflation fighting on the basis of dire- you know, more direct money transfers to individuals, which is kind of as dumb as a bag of hammers. But I guess why let a good political opportunity go to waste? What do you think happens in terms of political economy in 2023? Are we in for a reckoning either in terms of the demand side of the economy, i.e. consumers coming under just too much mortgage payments, too many credit card bills and auto loans to service, and or could we be sensing that the government now, most of its debt financed really on the short term of the bond yield curve, I think the, you know, the average duration of Canadian debt is you know, two to three years. Uh, it's incredibly risky in the sense that if rates do remain higher, debt servicing costs are going to explode uh, at the federal level. Yeah, I think um, one thing that Sean mentioned, I think in the last episode or the one before, is that we just haven't seen Canadians turning on the federal government because of all this um, chaos in the economy. And uh, it's hard to really know why that is like you, you can maybe say they understand that this is, you know, broadly a global phenomenon, everyone's kind of dealing with it. And um, the trouble with that is that, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm on the front lines of this, I, up until midway through this year, I had a variable rate mortgage, and um, I go to the gas station twice a week and see the prices and you feel it like, it just hits you every time you go to the grocery store. Um, and I've always been told by you know, political strategist types that it's not so much one scandal that sinks a government, it's sort of a pervasive feeling um, that just accumulates over time. I think the Harper government just, you know, there wasn't one thing, it wasn't so much the Mike Duffy scandal, but it was all the stuff associated with that, that it, it kept just telling people in Canada about the government. Um, and I, I can't imagine a worse situation for a government than what we're seeing right now. Um, and then if we go into next year and we start to see a recession, we're already seeing, I think, the first indicators of you know demand starting to go down. Um, it'll be really interesting to see if that trend keeps up because the blame just hasn't been there yet from Canadians. And maybe that's because inflation sort of necessarily implies that the economy is ticking along. As much as there's high prices, people are all working. Um, I'm interested in that the the housing market too. That was one of your predictions, Roger. So I'd be interested to see what you, <laughs> maybe just for self-interest reasons on my part, what do you predict for the housing market next year? Yeah. Um, well, before I get to that, just to back up to what you're saying about pure polyev, it, it is surprising to the extent to which I, for one, in 2022, thought that his message about gatekeepers, about you know Canadians hurting, um, these were really in tune with the moment, right? With the moment of higher interest rates, with inflation, the souring mood that that creates. But, you know, something I have to constantly remind myself is that inflation is also a sign of an economy that's gotten more demand than it's got supply. Like it's a hot economy. It's an economy that's doing well to that extent. So 
while inflation casts this kind of pall over us individually and collectively, it's also a symptom of a strong economy. And I wonder maybe that is what's propping up um, maintaining support for the incumbent government and why the criticism hasn't been as pointed yet. I think if we do see in the balance of the year 2023, uh, you know, much higher uh, uh, rates of uh, interest or overnight interest rates, we could, I think, quite conceivably end up with that steeper, sharper economic contraction led in large part by housing. And that's if I wonder when, you know, the stop clock tells the right time twice a day, if we come to that moment where people are like, wow, um, now the job losses have started to add up. Um, this is in addition to, you know, the higher cost of, uh, of living. This is addition to um, falling home values. I, I don't know. I put that all together in 2023, and I just don't see why that isn't tough slogging for an incumbent government but you're right you're absolutely right in your analysis to date it just hasn't stuck yeah i always wonder too if maybe we there is sort of this trope in u.s politics that you know if there's some economic indicator that the economy is starting to slump in october of an election year it's always a bad sign for the incumbent or the you know the vice president of the incumbent um and i i wonder if maybe that's not quite the same in canada because i remember stephen harper just was slogging out minority governments and then they were in power when the financial crisis hit and they just were the that that was the right party the right prime minister for the moment and i think it was harper's performance in that crisis that allowed him to get his majority in 2011 and i you know maybe there's a case to be made that a lot of the effects and the job losses hadn't quite worked their way through the system yet um, but i think that they showed competence then and i wonder if maybe you know, Canadians, based on polling, tend to generally see Trudeau and the Liberal government's response to COVID as generally competent. Like, I have my own concerns. I have even more concerns with the Ford government in Ontario. But like, overall, I think most people just feel like it went pretty well. And relative to the rest of the world, I think that's true. So I wonder if maybe they're just sort of reaping that competence bonus that they got from COVID. Um, and it, they'll just maybe ride that for a couple of years. Well, Stuart, let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, I want to talk to you about what you thought the big stories were in 2022 that give us some clues as to trends, uh, whether they be issues, events, or personalities that we should be following or expecting in 2023. So we'll come back with that conversation right after this short break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm in conversation with Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, is away on a well-deserved break with a newborn in his family. So congratulations, Sean and company, for... Um, 
yeah, helping with the population replacement. He's not quite there yet, Stuart. You know, got to remember two two kids. Uh, uh, you got to go for the third. If you really <laughs> yeah, we tapped out at two, so <laughs> ditto, ditto. So you know, I've not done my job here. But um, let's talk about you know stories that struck you in 2022 that you think will kind of spill over into the coming year. I have a couple on my mind, but I'm curious to know what you think those might be. Yeah, the one I'm really, this is maybe this is just my own personal interest, but um, we will be running a story in the first week back, um, the January 9th week on just um, Pierre Polyev's idea to defund the CBC. What, like that's, a, it so far has been a catchphrase. It's been a slogan and a chant at his rallies. And if you haven't, I'm sure most of our listeners have seen this already, but if you go to YouTube and type in defund the CBC, Pierre Polyev, you can see at these rallies, the roof blows off every time this chant comes up. It's hugely popular. And I think the assumption has always been that is sort of a conservative base thing, that that is a very hot issue for the base. And it'll never be anything more than that. And um, Aaron O'Toole, I think, confirmed the conventional wisdom on this when he ran his leadership campaign saying he would defund the CBC and then just said, no, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do some committee that'll talk, you know, for three years about the CBC and maybe make some changes. Um, I, I wonder if maybe the conventional wisdom isn't quite right. There was some Ipsos polling last year um, that showed that, you know, it's not a sort of dominant issue. It's not something people actually really care about, but I don't think people feel as strongly about the CBC as maybe someone like me who, you know, I interned there when I was in journalism school and uh, my wife worked there for years. And, um, you know, I have some warm feelings about growing up watching the CBC, but I wonder if maybe that is the outlier position. And I'm very curious to see where this goes next year, where, um, first of all, how do you actually do it? What does defund the CBC actually mean? Does that mean killing it? I don't think that's what it will be. Um, but I talked to some experts, some people who have different ideas of how you might do that. And I am very curious if they will actually continue with this idea or if they'll sort of get off the ride like Aaron O'Toole did. Um, so my guess is that Pierre Polyev is pretty serious about this and that, you know, they may actually um, run on this in an election campaign. And I think if you remember, um, I think Sean was around when this happened in the Harper government, but when they got rid of the long form census and we had this sort of prolonged elite freak out about it. And, you know, you, you talk to an average person in Tim Hortons and they don't give a damn about the long form census, but the amount of experts and journalists and people who cared about it, it just was unrelenting for the government. And I think that the CBC might provoke a similar elite freakout, and then that'll be a really interesting um, microcosm to sort of test Pierre Polyev's populism. Because a true populist wouldn't care about the elite freakout, but um, you know he's talking to the press. He talked to the press gallery today. Actually, he's doing it a little more than he used to. I think they do care a little bit about you know sort of elite voices. So I think that'll be a really interesting test case for Polyev. Yeah, I'll be, I look forward to reading those uh, articles in the Hub uh, in the new year. Um, the thing I, I think I would look at in terms of a constellation of stories that will carry over into next year is, um, uh, I, I think, a legitimate anxiety that people have have built up over the course of the last 12 months about uh, state capacity in Canada. Um, you know, it goes from 
the prosaic but annoying, uh, you know, passport offices that don't work, that can't get you your travel documents, to really the serious and substantive, you know, emergency uh, ICU care for children, um, not available at the levels that it could be, which requires, um, you know, again, an emergency kind of response. But there's a lot to paint, you know, between those two ends of the spectrum, I think, in terms of declining or at least troubled state capacity in Canada. Um, it goes to, you know, issues around um, all kinds of aspects of zoning and regulation and the slow kind of seeming pace of, of government, the inefficiency um, that was always understandably there, but has somehow, I think, come to a boiling point for many of us. And again, I think for a lot, it comes down to healthcare, but I think it's bigger than just a healthcare story. I think that will bleed over into next year because I think some of the structural features that are driving it, you know, will not go away, which is, uh, you know, some outside of the control of the government, you know, a, a labor market that hasn't corrected yet, where it's hard to, to sometimes find the people to do the work that's required. But also, I think, you know, a really stalled and um, frustrated kind of return to work on the part of all levels of government um, with the federal government now really fighting simply to get employees back into the office two days a week and doing this seemingly with limited uh, success. I just think we're all a bit naive if, if you think that remote work, something that we wrote about in our empty office series at the Hub this year, if there isn't a cost for that, you know, for every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. And yes, there are some jobs that can be outsourced um, and probably should be, again, for cost efficiency reasons. Do you really need uh, your IT staff using up um, uh, an office in Hull, Quebec to provide, you know, services when they can do that uh, from their home or on some other arrangement, ideally an outside contractor, wouldn't that be creative? But the bigger issue here, Stuart, I think, is that these this return to failure of return to work on the part of many public servants uh, at scale, it's across the entire public sector. And there's lots of, I think, increasing evidence to show that teams matter. You know, it matters to work together, to understand uh, common objectives, common values, common purpose. Uh, I think falling productivity across all of Canada is, a, is an issue, a consequence of the pandemic and what we're seeing. But I think it could be, again, unfortunately, especially held, uh, felt and, and held in, in a lot of government institutions in the year to come. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, I mean, partly I remember writing about COVID in the early 2020 and, you know, some like wild eyed optimists were saying, you know, in, in the Spanish flu, there was the roaring 20s after that and everybody went crazy and had fun. And now we are all people won't leave their homes and they're all hypochondriacs. And, and that's just like the exact opposite of that. And I actually I'm starting to be feel a little bit concerned about that because this is. I think you were starting to feel this malaise in Canada before COVID even started. And I, you just see it in so many different uh, areas of life. And I almost shudder when our contributor, Richard Shimuka sends a, a new piece about the Canadian forces, because it's always just so depressing. And 
um, you should read his prediction this week about the future of the forces because he says they're on the brink of collapse. And the thing that could push them into collapse is being deployed. Like <laughs> the thing that mm. they're supposed to do will actually destroy the forces because they need a decade to sort of retrench and build up again. And I, I it's just hard to imagine a country getting into that kind of shape considering the level of, you know, life and economy that we've gotten used to and um, all the stories that have passport offices, all this kind of stuff. I think the, the sort of grace period that I, th I think most Canadians were giving because of the pandemic, you know, you went into an A&W and they had one staff member and their, their hair was on fire and it, you had to wait half an hour. I think we all have sort of gone beyond that grace period. And at some point we're going to have to start holding people accountable for these things. Yeah. Let's just end, uh, Stuart, on, you know, predictions about uh, what could happen um, to Canada vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the broader world. You know, we saw this this past year, the launch of a kind of Asia-Pacific strategy, a seeming recognition that uh, China and indeed was more than just a competitor. It's a, th a threat uh, to a lot of Canadian vital interests. Um, we have a war in Ukraine that Canada is uh, participating to the extent to which uh, we have, um, you know, considerable funds deployed supporting uh, arms procurement and uh, the Ukrainian army and Ukrainians generally, as 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 we should. And you know, we have, uh, I think, a relationship with the United States that probably isn't great, but it's certainly not as tumultuous and uncertain and tenuous as it was during the Trump years. Do you think this coming 12 months will be uh, a time for Canada of uh, kind of wait and see, or do you think there's the potential here for more disruption, more change, uh, possibly Canada increasingly forced to choose allies and friends over the broader set of interests that it might have? Yeah, I, I think that China has been sort of forcing the issue on this. Um, and I, I do think we've talked about this before, but I think that China is obviously a powerful country that commands a lot of influence on the world stage. But I wouldn't be surprised if 20 or 30 years from now, we're looking back at this as sort of the peak of China's influence. And we have a piece coming um in uh, the first week back in January 9th, probably, um, from the Conservative MP Garnet Jenis about the rise of Africa. And I think, you know, it's just one of those things that um, I I'd never really thought about, but the average age in Africa is so low, they're growing so fast, they could really become an influential force on the world stage. And at the very time that China's sort of on the downslope. So, you know, I was watching my two kids, I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old, watching them play in the snow. And just the natural dynamic of that is that six-year-old runs around and the two-year-old is chasing after her saying, you know, like, I want to want to catch up, uh, don't leave me behind. And that's what Canada feels like right now on the world stage is everyone is sort of doing their own thing and Canada is chasing behind saying, we don't want to be on the wrong side of this. And we've just realized belatedly that that is a chance there could be a chance that that happens. Um, so I think that's kind of where the Trudeau government's at. I think it's become pretty obvious this year that they have sort of belatedly realized this and they're sort of scrambling to get back. Yeah, my only contribution to this as we wrap up the show is 
don't count out, I think, the risks of um, conflict uh, with China over Taiwan in 2023. I think a lot of people feel that China right now is obviously dealing with its COVID surge and coming out of its um, have now failed, clearly failed zero COVID strategy. But I think this is this is unsettled business for China, and whether it's the next 12 months um, or the year after, I, I don't think it's something that's 5, 10, 15 years out. I think the contest with China over the future and fate of Taiwan is in our, unfortunately, in our nearer term future. And, um, you know, Canada has ships uh, in Asia. We participated in, you know, transitioning the, uh, the Straits of Taiwan with uh, European uh, and uh, American uh, carriers and other uh, naval vessels. So we are very much in this and uh, it's real and to me, it's almost unfathomable. It the sense of kind of disruption to the global economy, the 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 breakdown of you know any kind of diplomatic or strategic relationship between China and the United States on climate change, on a whole host of issues from artificial intelligence to you know regulation of outer space. I mean, it, it goes on and on. If you think of the two big global participants, increasingly on edge with the risk of that spilling over into conflict. I think it is going to be a year where Canada would be well advised to stick close to its allies and friends. And as painful it is, it is to us as a country that's been imbued with, I think, an increasingly outdated myth about, you know, Pearsonian internationalism and multilateralism and Canada's, you know, constructive middle power. Those were all great ideas and great things to do in a, in a different era. We are now in an era of global um, uh, multipolar competition, uh, increasingly between peer competitors, China and the United States. And we're inevitably going to come down on one side of that. We have to. Uh, so I think decoupling with China, friendshoring, thinking about ways to uh, ensure that we are not vulnerable uh, to China vis-a-vis uh, -vis our own supply chains, our own economy. Uh, these are going to be hopefully big issues that people will take up in earnest in 2023 to prepare for what I think will be the next big geopolitical risk after the Ukraine war, which is the fate, the future, the fight over Taiwan. Well, Stuart, let's put a pin in it there. It's a great show. We've covered you know, Canadian politics, the Canadian economy. We've talked about some of the big stories from the previous year that I think will impact the year to come, and we've ended on geopolitics. So the usual uh, smorgasbord of the hub that we've enjoyed. Um, what, uh, what? Just finally, Stuart, should we expect in the hub as we return from our holiday uh, predictions week, which we've been rolling out this week, and you can catch it www.thehub.ca. Uh, next week we get back in earnest. Um, what uh, what should readers be looking for? Uh, so next week, we continue our uh, top 10 stories. So if you're a Hub contributor, you will see if you were in the top five next week. And then uh, after that, we will have, watch out for my defund the CBC piece, please. I think I've right. given a lot of this stuff away already, but that piece by Garnet Genis, I, I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did, but it's a really interesting piece on Africa. So uh, watch out for it. Hey, thanks, Stuart. Uh, have a great new year. Try to find a burning ball to uh, 
wheeled around your your <laughs> head. And uh, again, I think it's a great grant application there for <laughs> you know expressing your cultural specificity. Uh, Come on, see if I can get John Iverson on board, and we'll <laughs> make it part of the Burns Scott, Club or something. You know, the Scots <laughs> are an oppressed group, Stuart. Through history, they've they've had it bad, but at least enjoy Braveheart. Great film. Uh, Nice to be in conversation with you today. Our best to Sean Spear and family, and we'll do this all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.